This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And this is the podcast where we talk about whatever is happening in the world involving the coronavirus. Last time we closed with a story on how health officials say it's rare for a pregnant woman to pass the virus on to her newborn child. Today we have the first reported case of an unborn child actually getting infected. So we'll talk about this highly unusual case. The Trump administration is now giving opponents more ammunition with its new orders for hospitals. Talk about that. And maybe we got too comfortable that the virus was going away. So lots of places opened back up. Now we might be stuck living like this, the back and forth, for a while longer. You know, I don't know about you, but I've never been comfortable with the virus. <laughs> no. No. It's not the kind of thing that I want to get. I don't want to get comfortable with it. It's no, not like. It's fine. No. It's... This pandemic will eventually end at some point, but the mental health impact could last much longer. And then two guys went to the beach in Southern California to try to hand out masks. Hilarity ensued, but so did some concern. People were cussing them out, saying things they shouldn't say. So we'll hear from them about their experience. But let's get back to the unborn child getting the coronavirus. Dr. Denise Jamerson is chair of gynecology and obstetrics at Emory University Healthcare. She's a member of the American College of Obstetricians COVID-19 Task Force. Doctor, how concerned should pregnant women be? Well, I think this is the most compelling evidence thus far that transmission from a mother to her fetus is possible. This isn't a huge surprise. There had been sort of an emerging pattern of a handful of cases that it seemed like it may have been possible. I think the really important thing to remember, though, that's very reassuring for pregnant women is that this is not common. We've had over 13 million cases of COVID globally, and yet only a handful of possible infections um, in newborn babies. And I think it's really important for pregnant women to remember that most babies born to moms with COVID do very well. And both have since recovered? Both were discharged from the hospital. The infant is improving from the report, and the mother is doing well. Now... I'm sorry, and correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding, though, of the the child that was born um, was that there was an inflammation issue. Uh, I'm not quite sure where in the body or or how it was determined, but if, if that's correct, I guess the question is, does anybody know at this stage of the game what potentially long-term issues might come from that? I don't think we know, um, although we're learning more every day. Since this is an early report of transmission, we don't yet know what the um, issues for this very rare occurrence will be. So this baby did have neurologic symptoms, did have um, inflammation in the brain, um, was discharged home on day of life 18, and from the report is um, improving. So I think it's too early to really know what the effects of these um, rare but devastating complications will be. What about for mom? What kind of symptoms did she present with? Was it the normal ones or were they some of the outlying ones? Because there's a whole lot going on, as you know, during pregnancy to, that's happening to the body. Yes, she was um, had a fever and had very common complaints um, and overall did well. It does not sound from the report like she had very severe illness. So she had um, an infection close to the time of um, giving birth. Do we know anything about, and I know there aren't that many therapeutics that, that uh, 
can be used or at least have been proven to work in, in severely ill COVID patients. But do we know anything about what happens if you use one of these therapeutics on a pregnant woman and, and what the impact might be on the child? That's, that's a really good question. So there's not a whole lot of um, uh, therapeutics that we're using for even severe COVID patients. There's some um, relatively new novel therapies such as remdesivir. And it's really important to remember that pregnant women, um, just because they're pregnant, should not be excluded from therapies or from vaccines that have been shown to benefit um, uh, non-pregnant persons. Imagine these two are going to be pretty closely watched for a while, right, just to see if anything develops even even later on down the line. Yes, I'm assuming that this infant will be very carefully followed um, and that the uh, folks in France will um, keep us posted on um, how the mom and how the baby are doing. Dr. Denise Jamison, Chair of Gynecology, Obstetrics, Emory University Healthcare. The Trump administration now ordering hospitals around the country to report virus data directly to the Health and Human Services Department. Now, this would bypass the CDC, and this opens the door for critics to wonder if the numbers could be tweaked and adjusted, perhaps manipulated. Dr. Jeffrey Klosner, professor of epidemiology and infectious diseases at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health, served as an epidemic intelligence officer at the Centers for Disease Control, frequent advisor to the CDC, the NIH, the WHO. So, Dr., should we be concerned about this? Well, we should be continued concerned about the you know chaos that currently exists with the uh, current administration's response to the um, epidemic. But um, you know, knowing the uh, leadership on the task force and uh, Dr. Burks, I know that that group is very interested in timely data. And one of the challenges with data going to uh, CDC first is because they have such a high level of integrity and focus on quality at the CDC, they're often reluctant to release the data um, to others un- unless they have high uh, confidence in, in, in those data. So this seems like a way to go around that uh, process to get uh, data faster, to be able to try to um, overstep the CDC and inform the task force, particularly around logistics and uh, where medications need to go and where ventilators need to go. So it's more of a focus on the medical response than the public health response, which is usually uh, where the uh, CDC leads. So the administration is saying that CDC is being too slow, and maybe that goes back to what you're saying about how they count their numbers and how they release their data. But the criticism that you start to see when everyone's posting about this is that you don't want these kind of numbers influenced in any way by politics. You just want to go on the numbers themselves. So is there a danger in sending it right to the city where everything is influenced by politics? Sure, there's a danger, and particularly, you know, there's a danger, particularly in California, where, you know, three-quarters of our hospitalized cases are in Latinx. So three-quarters of people hospitalized in California are Latino, which is obviously much higher than the general uh, population distribution. And the concern is, you know, the White House could somehow use those numbers and the the data to identify, you know, people who, um, you know, don't have the right immigration status and, you know, maybe, you know, hospitalized because they're sick, but then ultimately be susceptible to deportation. Is there any possibility by changing the way this is being uh, reported or distributed to a different, uh, by a different route, 
that it could somehow skew the numbers, the raw data, because as it's no great secret that you know the president keeps saying if we did less testing, we'd have fewer cases. Well, I mean, one thing we've been recommending from the get-go is to focus on the number of new people hospitalized every day, and the, the those data really have not been forthcoming. So at least with this new proposal, one of the data elements that they're requesting is for every hospital to tell them how many new people are being hospitalized every day. And that could give us potentially a better sense of the the force of the um, infection and the force of the epidemic and where we need to focus um, interventions. One of our challenges so far, or one of the missed opportunities, is been, there's been no focus on the interventions, right? It's like everyone has to be locked down. All businesses have to be closed. The epidemic is not spread that way. It's actually very heterogeneous, which means it's it's mixed. Risk, risk is not all equal. So if we had better data, better an analysis of those data, better insights, we could have a much more targeted approach, which would be potentially much less costly for everyone. Will this change result in that? Um, nobody knows. How's the CDC been doing through this? There were early screw-ups. I think maybe we can agree on that. But now it seems like they're trying. There's guidelines to get released, but even those guidelines are getting retooled now in terms of should you or should you not reopen schools. Right. Well, as the former CDC director said, they're an agency now that's been, you know, straight-jacketed and their, you know, feet are in concrete. So um, it's just been really hampered from, you know, taking the leadership role that they, you know, should be taking. They prepared for pandemics for decades. When I was a CDC officer in the 90s, this was definitely a focus of our training. Uh, more recently, when I worked for CDC in the late 2000s, there was a lot of focus on pandemic, pandemic preparedness. But now the agency has been relatively, you know, sidelined, and um, we're not realizing, you know, all that investment and training that had been uh, put in place. So, Hopefully, you know, in the future, the next administration uh, will, you know, realize the value of the CDC and allow them to get back in front of this epidemic and give us the public health that we deserve. Dr. Jeffrey Klosner, professor of epidemiology and infectious diseases, now at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. Reality can be ugly. It looked like we were lulled into a false sense of security that the pandemic was coming to an end, but then a summer surge of cases hit. Now, we might be stuck wearing masks and socially distancing ourselves for the next year, maybe more. Dr. Eric Toner, senior scientist at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. So, doctor, how much longer does this new normal last? We are going to have to do this for a very long time, I'm afraid. Um, in the best case scenario, we might have one or more vaccines that are authorized for use you know, sometime around the beginning of the year, that's the optimist point of view. Uh, it's never happened before that speed, but it's not impossible, I suppose. But even once a vaccine is authorized, uh, we've never tried to deploy a vaccine on this scale. So we have to figure out how we're going to distribute it and how it's going to be administered to people. And then there's a real question of whether or not everybody's going to want to take this vaccine. There's a lot of hesitancy about vaccines in general. There's been a lot of hesitancy expressed about this vaccine. So I think it's going to be quite a while before the majority of the population has been vaccinated, uh, which is what we need to bring the pandemic to an end. So I think that we're going to have to be dealing with social distancing and mask wearing and avoiding crowds for at least the next year, if not several years. 
Well, I was going to say, uh, when it comes to vaccination, I mean, you know, uh, lots of adults don't get the flu shot. Uh, what percentage of the population would need to be vaccinated in order to have the social distancing and the mask wearing go away? What percentage, roughly? Yeah, we, we, we don't know that number yet. Um, it depends on the vaccines. We don't know yet how effective uh, any of the candidate vaccines will be. And we won't know that for quite some time until they've been through a lot of testing. So, but generally speaking, uh, we are looking for somewhere between 60 and 90% of the population to be vaccinated. And that varies from disease to disease. It depends on uh, the nature of the disease, its epidemiology, and the effectiveness of the vaccine. How much would things change if we got mask use to be like sky high? If we were 97, 98% compliant and everyone was wearing masks every time they were near people or went out, the course that we're on right now, how different would things be? It would be a lot better. It would make day-to-day interactions much safer. So I'm not sure that we would be able to do everything that we want to do, but we'd be able to do a lot of things more safely. We'd be able to go to stores more safely. We'd be able to feel more comfortable. Frankly, it's the only way that we're going to get our economy opened again. If we don't do this, we don't all wear masks. If we don't all maintain distance and avoid crowds, we're going to be on this roller coaster that we're on right now. It's probably fair to say that an awful lot of people, and maybe it's wrong for them to think that, but I think a lot of people are probably not so much afraid of getting COVID-19 and getting sick. They're afraid of getting COVID-19 and dying. If we ended up with really good, effective therapeutics in the absence of of an effective vaccine or vaccines, the kind of therapeutics where you get tested, it's positive, the doctor says, let me call into this prescription to the neighborhood pharmacy. Take this a couple of times a day for five days. You'll probably be okay. Would that be a workable alternative? And is it a likely one? Yes. If, if we had a, a highly effective therapeutic um, medication that could be administered orally as an outpatient early on in the course of the illness, uh, that would be a game changer. We don't see any such therapeutic on the horizon right now. Um, it's not to say that it can't happen, um, but there there is none right now. The therapeutics that are emerging right now are uh, useful for people who are hospitalized and particularly for people who are, are quite sick in the hospital. We don't have anything that looks promising currently for people who... Uh, don't require hospitalization. Even if you don't get sick from the virus, it can still be impacting you in negative ways. It's creating a big mental health burden that people could be dealing with for a very long time. How long can people stay at home? And how long can they be isolated from friends and family before it gets to them? Psychologist Rachel Daltrey of Westchester University talked to KYW's Matt Leon about what the pandemic is doing to us mentally. So much has happened in this amount of time. So many lives have changed. There's been so many consequences 
um, it's going to be normal that we're struggling with our mental health. And, and some people are going to be struggling more significantly. And, and it's not a focus. You know, I, I think our culture forgets about that. You know, thinking about on the news, we don't hear about people talking about mental health. We don't hear about, hey, these are the resources um, that you can engage in or, you know, investment in resources for people. Um, so I, I think it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come strong and hard, unfortunately. I mean, we're not prepared to handle that at all as we're currently wired as a country, correct? Correct. Yeah. And, and just to think about like our physical well-being like seeing hospitals not having the resources they need for the physical side of things and mental health is way, way beyond, you know, the, the physical health in terms of resources. So I, I think, I, I hope it comes to light before it gets really bad. I hope, I hope people start investing and, and thinking about it. I've seen numbers of uh, addictions spiking during this quarantine and, you know, it kind of goes along with everything else that makes sense if, it's something you've been battling or fighting that this would lead to this. I'm assuming that doesn't surprise you at all. And do you expect to see that continue once again, well past the virus? Yeah, no, definitely. No, that doesn't seem surprising. Like I said, you know, uh, people haven't been able to engage with their resources. So if people are in recovery, they may not have been able to go to their meetings or have access to the care that they need. Again, and we're also home alone with our feelings, or we may be in a home with family or others where it's not a good situation. It's not a safe situation. So which leads to more substance use as well. The other consequence of the pandemic is the financial toll. And when jobs are lost, when there's a recession, you do see increases in substance use and abuse and also suicide. If you had the keys to the castle and were able to put a game plan in place that we could really deal with this, not attack it with bumper sticker slogans and stuff like that, but really dig in and be prepared for what we're going to have to deal with, what would you want to see happen? Well, I think the one piece would be obviously investing in mental health professionals, you know, in terms of insurance coverage or just, you know, investing in low cost. I would say like, you know, counselors are there to help and also they need to make a living too. So all counselors can't do all low cost because they also have to support themselves financially, you know, getting that investment and providing those resources. I also think resources into community approach. Um, how do we as a community support one another and help each other? You know, there may never be enough counselors, mental health professionals, licensed providers to provide all the care, but also how does the community take care of one another? How do we support one another um, and support our overall well-being, which is also going to help and improve? So I think kind of the, that two-prong approach would be my vote. Is there anything in history that provides a playbook for what we're dealing with? Because... I think the knee jerk for everyone our age is 9-11, but as big a tragedy as it was, it was, it's different. It was a one time, you know, I, the only thing I could think of, and obviously it's before our time, but was the great depression. When I say that, I just mean wave of bad news after wave of bad news after wave of bad news. And it just, it, it, once again, I just keep coming back to the idea. It's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. And I, I don't know if we have a, a specific playbook, you know, we in terms of the pandemic. And I, I agree. I think the Great Depression is something we can kind of go off of. But technology is different. Healthcare is a little bit different. Um, the view of mental health care and accessibility of mental health care is different. It's gotten better and it's still, you know, far behind what it needs to be. And I think it's it's hard because it's 
it's all about resources typically of like, what are the resources? Where are the resources coming from? What is the support from the government, you know, at a federal, at a state level, at a local level? And if you don't have the resources, it's really hard to do anything. You know, there, there's only so much that you can do. So I, I think, you know, there, there's a sketchbook and I think we're, we're trying to write the playbook as we go along. The comedy duo and podcasters Chad and JT try to do some good on the Huntington Beach boardwalk here in Southern California. They had a box of free face masks to give away to anyone who wanted one. And then they recorded the entire experience. If anyone needs a mask, we've got them. You don't need one? Yeah, I don't mind. Why not? I don't know if anybody has ever explained to you that breathing carbon monoxide is not healthy. I heard about that, but I heard about this other thing. Called coronavirus? Yeah. Yeah, I know, but I'm not afraid. I know where I'm going when I die. Do you guys? Uh, I don't know. So I'm not the sky? Hopefully to a pokey shop. <laughs> the great pokey shop in the sky. It's where we all want to go. Chad and JT with us. Guys, how's it going? What up? Stuck <laughs> to be on the air. Chilling, dude. Your guys' voice sounds crisp and clean and nice to listen to. <laughs> We're turning that into a promo. Oh, We're yeah. going to use that. So where did this idea come from? Um, well, I surf Huntington a lot, and then we hit this pokey shop bear flag a ton in HB, and we just saw people weren't wearing masks, and we figured that uh, supply chains were just kind of boned up, you know? So we just figured we'd go out and just hand out some free masks. The people who need them so, but it turned out that it wasn't a supply chain issue people just think they suck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously we couldn't play all the video because there are people who literally curse at you they were flipping you off what was the breakdown of people who actually just started confronting you with anger versus people who would have somewhat of a conversation with you guys um most people were pretty chill and they took masks you know some people were pretty aggro as you saw um but you know it's all good, and then we sort of arranged a, for those guys a happy hour at Sharky's so we could further discuss. <laughs> yeah, we think we'll be able to convince them. The average person can be persuaded to a new perspective with five beers and three Pokeballs on average. <laughs> Scientifically proven. Were, were, were you guys surprised, though, by any of the reactions? I, I mean, uh, my reaction when I watched the, uh, the video is I, I think you guys are hysterical. Uh, but I also thought that some of the responses were kind of sad in a way because some of the things that people told you and that they believe, uh, I think, are just, from a scientific basis, so unbelievable, it's amazing they believe it. Did, did you have that reaction at all? No, I mean, I get why people get upset when they're told to do something. Like, my mom, when she forced me to move out, I was pretty upset. But <laughs> it was probably for the best for my folks' marriage, for sure. And he's been super happy ever since. Yeah, and I'm pumped. <laughs> but I also, I was surprised by one dude's reaction. One dude was like, God does love me. And then he said, F you to me. And those seem like disparate thoughts. <laughs> yeah, one of these things is not like the other. Um, people were walking by without them. You asked them why they didn't have them. What was the response? Two girls were like, oh, we left them in the car, and they were going to go into some place like they yeah, didn't need them. A lot of people leave them in the cars we found. Uh, I think that's kind of a trend. They're just like That, was, that yeah. was a very common response. Yeah. We were I, like, oh, maybe, maybe there's like a misconception you know it's like you wear it in the car but 
Oh, I always leave like my shoes and my car keys in the car too. So yeah. <laughs> those things are kind of just a vortex for stuff. You also have like six Gatorade bottles too. Yeah, if you get into my passenger seat, your foot crunches against some uh, plastic. Yeah, but if you ever want to get hydrated, hop in JT's whip. <laughs> yeah, I got some wounded soldier Gatorades for you guys. Hey guys, it's I got so I, I got to ask you guys out of fairness when when you're not making this video, do you when you're in public, do you wear masks? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, I don't go out that much. I've actually come back to my mom's house, and Chad's living here with me, too, so um, we're pretty stockpiled here. But, yeah, we definitely wear masks. Yeah. Obviously, you guys yep. are on the younger side. Everybody says it's a bunch of young people who are going out, partying, going to bars, restaurants, house parties, not paying attention. What do you say to the 20 and 30-somethings out there? Well, dude, actually, we, we learned that, uh, actually, there's this rager... Uh, we were at Lindsay's Rager, and she's she had a strict mask rule, you know. And a lot of people weren't. There's a few people weren't down with it, uh, like our buddy Kellen, and he's like, it's whack. But then he got Corona, and we had to cancel our vacation to Ibiza. We were really bummed. So that sort of set us on the path of like, okay, this is serious business. And he, he had like set everything up in Ibiza, like we were going to use his brother's boat. Um, and we didn't want to use it without him, so the whole thing got kind of just kind of. It was ruined. It would have been yeah. great for the gram. So, <laughs> is this going to be a continuing series? Yeah, as long as we have masks, we're going to keep handing them out. We've been handing them out a lot, so it it could be for sure. And and I think like a message to the people who don't want to wear them is just like a pretty serious question. You know, like, do you ever want to do a beer bong again? <laughs> That's the reward at the end of this, Chad and JT. Going deep with Chad and JT, it's the podcast. Some health experts had said it was possible the virus could dramatically slow down in the summer with temperatures heating up and humidity increasing. Well, cases have actually jumped dramatically in warm and hot places like Arizona, Texas, Las Vegas, Florida, Southern California. Engineers and ventilation experts say this may be in part because people escape the heat by retreating indoors where heating, ventilation, and air conditioning systems could exacerbate airborne transmission with unplanned air currents. A task force was established to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic and provide guidance to ensure that buildings are prepared for epidemics. Its recommendations include ventilation control, filtration, and maintenance. Never thought I'd be walking in places worried about my air currents, but I here know. we are. Yeah. It's like, I don't even know. How do you determine the air current? I guess you... You lick your finger and you put it up. Hold on. Let me... <laughs> let me, let me, let me. I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not detecting anything. I don't think there is any ventilation in here. Thanks for listening to us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Stitcher.